So um, today we come to the end of this sermon series that we've been doing on the book of Romans. And some of you may well be thinking, thank goodness for that. Others might be thinking, but you've just scratched the surface. We couldn't do 10 weeks. We could do a whole year on the book of Romans. And probably most of you, you just don't give a monkeys anyway. But um, what we, just to back up, actually, in terms of the book of Romans, Paul um, is writing to a church in Rome. And it's probably about 200 people, about the size of this church, gathered here this morning Um, But they are scattered, meeting in people's homes all over the city. And part of the reason for that is because of the hostility and persecution that they face because they seek to be loyal to Jesus as opposed to being loyal to the Roman emperor. And so they face persecution and hostility. Um, And then we find, and this was picked up on uh, in previous weeks, that there's also a degree of disunity Uh, amongst them as a church between Jews and Gentiles. There is a danger of schism. Who who would think that you'd find that within a church? I don't know. Uh, But as we know, out of schism, always, I think, there will be great hurt and pain when a church splits. And so Paul is writing to them in that context as well. And, And he writes to this scattered persecuted, fragmented church in Rome to remind them of the gospel. And the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is something that kind of finds its way all the way through Paul's letter to the church in Rome. It's clear that Paul is convinced of himself that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, has changed everything. And he wants those believers in Rome to hear afresh that the gospel forgives, that within the gospel we find restoration and the transformation of broken lives, that we find that because of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, that fractured communities can come back together again, that because of what Jesus has done that is proclaimed through the gospel, we find that a world in crisis will one day be made whole again. Andrew Ollerton, who has been our guide as we've been working our way through Paul's letter to the church in Rome, he says, when you hear the word gospel, remember it's good news for you personally, but also, he says, for governments, galaxies, and everything in between. The gospel changes everything. Tom Wright, a theologian and bishop, he writes that the gospel is God's age-old plan to put the world and human beings to right. And I think if we're honest, we know that there is something wrong with us and our world and that we need to be put right. The Apostle Paul, and we looked at this 10 weeks ago, writes in the opening of his letter, I am not ashamed of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. And so he proclaims it clearly to that church in Rome. He says that because of the life, the death, the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus, something has happened in the world in time and space, which means that the world is now a different place. 
And we talked some weeks ago about the goodness of the gospel, the blessing that it brings, and, and recognize that if we want to get in on the goodness of the gospel, the fruit of the gospel, all we need to do is simply believe in Jesus. And, and that faith in itself is a gift from God. And when we do that, we are, the biblical term is justified, we are made right with God. We come home to our Father in heaven. And Paul, when he starts off his letter, he starts off by introducing the key part of his letter to the church in Rome. And that key part, the key person, is the Lord Jesus Christ. He focuses their attention on Jesus. And as we come to the end, we're looking at Romans 15 today. Romans 16 is a whole list of names, but Romans 1 and Romans 15 are are like the bookends in some ways. What he does at the end, he again draws their attention to Jesus. And he encourages them again, despite what they face, to put their hope in Christ. And hope is something that I want us to think about this morning. Now, did you know there are 35 days until Christmas Day? Who's excited? Just three of you. So... um, As we know, around about October, November time, the adverts start to come out. And uh, there's already loads on our screens. Here's one of them. This is my favorite at the moment. Can we play that video, James? Thank you. Isn't it great? Doesn't that make you want to shop in John Lewis? Isn't that? (laughs) La vie de la festa. um, Life is a celebration. Um, I think that advert is about hope. Um, This young boy hoped that the seed he was going to plant would grow into a perfect Christmas tree. But instead, he gets a Venus flytrap, and he's called Snapper. And uh, they've got lots of merchandising out as well. So if you want any one of those, just pop into Waitrose, and you can buy your own Snapper. And, um, And in some ways, this little boy's hopes are dashed. But all is well, because Snapper, as we can see, can unwrap Christmas presents. He can sing, dance, make decorations and shoot confetti cannons. But what the boy actually hoped for, this Christmas tree, didn't materialize from that seed. And I think the deeper meaning that I take from that advert, which I'm sure you share with me, is that in life it's not unusual for our hopes not to be realized. And for us to find ourselves in a place of disappointment, maybe even despair. A cheery vicar Uh, in the 17th century called Thomas Fuller wrote this, we are born crying, we live complaining, and we die disappointed. I think it's extreme, not very hopeful. But, But I've met people like that. And I can be a bit like that at times, crying, complaining, and disappointed, maybe leading a life uh, of what is called of quiet desperation. Now, who remembers Robbie Williams? Yeah, Robbie Williams. So um, he's got a documentary out at the moment, Netflix or Prime. Absolutely fascinating. As you look at it, it seems like he had everything the world had to give. And yet, it's clear that it's almost like he was leading a life of quiet desperation. Watch it. Uh, If you don't like him, don't watch it. But I think what we need in life If we find ourselves in that place with Thomas Fuller, what we need is hope. 
And, and Christian hope is an expectation that the future is going to be better than the present. It's a, a deep certainty that despite our circumstances, there is a better life and a better world to come. Uh, American theologian Frederick Beatner he writes that the Christian hope is the hope that because of Jesus, sin and death has been conquered, and that at some unforeseeable time and in some unimaginable way, Christ will return with healing in his wings. Because of Jesus. Thinking about hope, though, and we've kind of picked up on that in a way in our prayers as well, hope seems to be in short supply in our world. And you have to set that against the incredible progress that has been made in the world in all kinds of ways. Now, there are those who argue with very clear facts and figures that the world now is in a much better place than it has ever been. A much better place than it has ever been. A book, brilliant book I read some years ago, um, this one here is called Factfulness. And it says, 10 reasons we're wrong about the world and why things are better than you think. And uh, this guy did huge research across the world. And there is good evidence, people like him and others have gathered, that across the world there is, in fact, despite what we see, there is decreasing violence, decreasing warfare, poverty and famine. That actually we are now living longer than we ever have done. People now have better access to healthcare and education than ever before. And that progress of our world is born out of very good evidence. Now, one author and historian, a chap called Yuval Noah Harari, he wrote this book in 2016. It's a light read, and uh, it's called Homo Deus. Um, and if you haven't read it, put it on your Christmas list. <laughs> Um, but, but basically, he, he argues this, and he wrote this in 2016. He says, at the dawn of the third millennium, humanity wakes up to an amazing realization. Most people rarely think about it, but the last few decades, we have managed, he said, to rein in famine, plague, and war. Of course, he says, these problems have not been completely solved, but they have been transformed from incomprehensible and uncontrollable forces of nature into manageable challenges. He says, we don't need to pray to any god or saint to rescue us from them. We know quite well what needs to be done in order to prevent famine, plague, and war. And, he says, we, humanity, usually succeed in doing it. Now, you may well beg to differ with this philosopher, uh, this was actually written as well before COVID, which had the world stumped. But the book that he wrote is called Homo Deus. And a, a translation of that is, humanity is God. Harari's big idea, and so he's an atheist Jew, uh, is that we don't need God. He says, because we have everything within ourselves to solve the problems of the world. His argument is that humanity is its own hope for the future. And actually, there are many people who buy into this way of thinking in terms of progress and that humanity is, in fact, the hope of the world. 
under the oversight of humanity, apparently, things can only get better. Do you remember that? D. Ream, Tony Blair, 1997, that was the anthem. Look how that worked out. But, but there are others who observe the world and humanity through a different lens and actually believe that in the Western world in particular, we live in an age of great anxiety. It doesn't lead to hope, but actually leads to disappointment and despair. A blogger and author, Andrew Sullivan, in response to people like Harari and another guy called uh, Pinker, he said, you know, given all the progress, why is there so much profound discontent, depression, drug abuse, despair, addiction, and loneliness in the most advanced liberal societies? Why, he might say, are there problems in Guernsey, given all the progress that we have made and this wonderful island on which we live? few years ago, again, this was before COVID and recession and house prices and interest rates and inflation, the market research firm in the UK, Ipsos, they carried out some research. And what they were looking at was the hope and the optimism of Generation Y, who are also known as millennials, kind of born between 1980 and 2000, those now um, in their 20s and 30s. And he wanted to find out, or Ipsos wanted to find out whether they were more hopeful about the future than their parents and grandparents. And this is what the research showed. Generation Y, millennials, are the least optimistic about their chances of leading a better life than their parents. Just one third of those from Generation Y agree that their generation will have had a better life than their parents' generation compared to two-thirds of those from the baby boomer generation, is a generation above me, uh, born between 1946 and 1965. And basically what it indicates is that people don't necessarily think in a younger generation that things can only get better. There's an indication that anxiety and quiet desperation and cynicism are actually on the rise and optimism and hope are in decline. Tim Keller was a pastor and theologian who worked in New York for uh, many years. He died earlier this year. And he wrote a book called Hope in Times of Fear, and based on the resurrection of Christ. But basically what he concluded is that the world in which we live is in a new age of anxiety, and that the Western world, he contends, is experiencing a growing crisis of hope. Many people don't actually think that things are going to get better. And so we have this crisis of hope. But for Christians, there is this hope that Christ will return with healing in his wings. And that there will be, as George prayed about earlier, as Revelation puts it, there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Hope is a key theme throughout the Bible. This deep certainty that despite our circumstances, there is in fact a better life and a better world to come. The word hope is used over 150 times in the Bible. Paul, in his letter to the church in Rome, uses it 15 times. And we find in our passage today, hope is mentioned three times. In verse 4, Paul writes about the scriptures for him 
the Old Testament, and he says that they give us hope. Why? Because they point to the Messiah, to Jesus. He says, for everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the Scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. He then goes on uh, in that text from Romans 15, and in verse 12, he quotes from the prophet Isaiah. And the prophet Isaiah said this, the root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations. In him, and he's talking here about Jesus, the Gentiles, everyone else apart from the Jews, will put their hope. And then in verse 13, a key verse for today as we finish this letter to the church in Rome, Paul writes this, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you might overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Hope and living a life of overflowing hopefulness are meant to be the hallmark of the church. Hope is meant to be a distinguishing characteristic of those who respond to the gospel and to seek to follow Christ. And this hope that we're meant to be marked by, that we're meant to overflow with, isn't something that we muster up within ourselves, but hope comes as a gift from the God of hope given to us by the Spirit. And because God, as Paul says, is a God of hope, who is able to bring something beautiful something new out of that which is broken and died. Because God is a God of hope, it follows that we who are created in the image of God are actually created to be hopeful creatures. Stanley Havas, an American theologian, said this. He says, because we are hopeful creatures, we're made in the image of God, we are able to imagine that the way things are isn't the way things have to be. As humanity, we aren't wired to be glass half-empty people. We're not wired to be pessimists and cynics because that in many ways denies the image of God within us. So if you are a grumpy old so-and-so, It's not good enough for you to say, oh, that's just who I am. Because it denies the image of God that is within you. And if the church is a miserable place to be, you might be thinking that this morning, (laughs) that shouldn't be the case. Because we are called by the God of hope to overflow with hope. Now, of course, there are going to be times in our lives when we are in despair, when we are pessimistic. But like a compass always returns to north, so we, as God's people, should always return to hope. We are created and called by this God of hope to be a people of hope in an age of anxiety and cynicism and at times great despair. In the Bible, the word hope comes from a few different Hebrew and Greek words. In the Old Testament, there's a a Hebrew word, yakal, which simply means to wait for. And then in the New Testament, there's a Greek word that 
Paul uses in his letter to the church in Rome. It's the Greek word elpis, which means a joyful and confident expectation of God's saving help. There is a sense in which biblical hope is about waiting with confidence and a joyful expectation for God to be at work in our lives, for God to be at work in the lives of others, for God to be at work in the church, and for ultimately God to be at work in our world. And hope in the Bible isn't so much about what we might be hoping for, but it's more about who we put our hope in, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's as we put our hope in him, we surrender the outcome of our hopes to him as we wait upon him. Biblical hope is not based on our circumstances, but actually it's based on God's faithfulness demonstrated to us countless times in the past that then gives us hope for the future. As we, as God's people, as we recall the mighty acts of God taught in the scripture, experienced in our own lives, so that gives us fuel so that we might have hope for the future. What we find in the gospel is that there is this God-sized event of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. It had never happened to anyone else before, and it hasn't happened since. But the fact that Jesus rose from the dead should be enough to give us hope that God can bring new life out of death, that God can bring something out of nothing. The fancy theological term is the, is the word ex nihilo, that God brings something out of nothing. And the life of hope that we are then called to leave is not based on our circumstances, but actually based on God's faithfulness and his divine action as we wait confidently for him. For the Apostle Paul, he's writing to this church in Rome and he's encouraging them to overflow with hope. But it was clear that as you find out a bit more about Paul's life and what he writes, that his circumstances weren't always favourable. Some weeks ago, we looked at Romans 8 and we could see how Paul encountered trouble and hardship and persecution and danger and imprisonment and how he even faced death. But Paul believed that his circumstances, that despite them, that as he waited upon God, as he put his hope in God, that God would act and God would bring something out of nothing, new life out of death. Which is why Paul writes to this church in Rome, this scattered, persecuted and fragmented church whose circumstances could quite easily lead them to a place of despair and he encourages, encourages them to be hopeful. He says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you might overflow by the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul is clear that them putting their hope in God is the only way of then going from a bitter place to a better place. That as they hope in God, that God would take them from schism to unity, from persecution to freedom, and ultimately in their lives from death to new life. And I think what is true for Paul 
and for that church in Rome, is also true for us as well. We can choose. We can choose to live in a story where we are born crying, we live complaining, and we die disappointed. We can choose to live like that. Or we can choose to be part of God's bigger story, where in the mess of life, and life is messy and incredibly disappointing at times, that in the mess of life, we still choose to hope in God, and we wait with confidence and joyful expectation for him to be at work. We can make a choice whether we want to be part of God's bigger story or not, knowing actually that with Jesus, despair is not the final word. So just in closing, as we think about hope and being a people of hope, I have to be honest and confess that I am not always very hopeful. I can, believe it or not, at times be quite cynical and despairing of situations and of other people. And I can, at times, live under that weight of despair. I can struggle to overflow with hope, to live a life of joy and peace. And, and I would say that as I've been working my way through Paul's letter to the church in Rome, as I've been thinking about this sermon today, I've been massively challenged as we come to the end of this letter to not live a life of cynicism and despair, but actually to receive God's gift of hope. And for me to put my hope in God once again and to surrender the outcome and to wait for him. I don't know what you've got going on in your life. You don't know what I've got going on in my life. But there are plenty of situations where I could just end up in a pit of despair. But I'm being challenged to receive afresh the gift of hope so that I might overflow with hope. So that I might let go and surrender the outcome to God. I hope that you too might be challenged as well. One quote um, that has really struck me as I've been thinking about this week comes from a former Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams. He's like a brain the size of a planet. And he wrote this. Jesus' life suggests... No, he says, stronger than that. Jesus' life insists that nowhere is God absent, powerless, or irrelevant. He said there is no situation in the universe in the face of which God is at a loss. There is no situation in the universe in the face of which God is at a loss. There are times when I am at a loss about people and situations. I find myself then in a downward spiral of despair. But as Jesus, we know, would say despair doesn't have to have the last word because we can choose to be part of God's bigger redemptive story, to receive God's gift of hope so that we might overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Surely, in the world in which we live, 
that life of overflowing hope must be a better way for us to live. Shall we stand? <laughs> going to pray for us and then we'll sing a final song together. And as we stand, it may well be that you personally face a situation that seems hopeless and leads you to despair. Just a moment of quiet to reflect on that. Is there something that you face that seems hopeless and leads you to despair? Just a moment of quiet. So this morning, as we think about our own lives, like a compass always returns to north, let us this morning receive the gift of hope. Return to hope in God and wait for his divine action. The psalmist wrote, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits and in his word I hope. And I pray those words of Paul over us this morning. And I pray that the God of hope would fill us with all joy and peace as we trust in him. So that we, as God's people, might overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, Amen.